Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to Truth Out, numerous states are considering legislation that would permit parents and other primary caregivers convicted of nonviolent crimes to request an alternative to prison. For example, in Massachusetts, before sentencing, the court must determine, in writing, the person's caregiver status and the availability of alternatives to prison. This legislation is notable because it is not attempting to alter prison conditions, but to keep parents out of jails and prisons. Nationally, an estimated 5 million children have had a parent incarcerated at some point in their lives. That estimate might be low since no agency or organization is keeping track of children with incarcerated parents. African-American children are seven times more likely than white children to have a parent incarcerated. Latinx children are two times as likely. In 2004, the Bureau of Justice Statistics found that 62% of women of all ages in state prisons were mothers of minor children. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, prisons today are paying incarcerated people less than they did in 2001. The average minimum daily wage paid to incarcerated workers for non-industry prison jobs is now 87 cents, down from 93 cents. The average maximum daily wage for the same prison job has decreased more significantly, from $4.73 in 2001 to $3.99 today. What has changed in those 16 years is that seven states lowered their maximum wages and South Carolina no longer pays wages for most regular prison jobs. Those South Carolina jobs paid up to $4.80 a day in 2001. With rare exceptions, the regular prison jobs pay nothing at all in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, and Texas. In Indiana, the lowest pay for regular non-industry prison jobs is 12 cents a day. The high is 25 cents. NPR reports that Arkansas' supply of the sedative midazolam, which it intends to use in lethal injections to execute people, will expire on April 30th. The state's solution is to execute eight prisoners in 10 days before April 30th. Executions at that speed have never occurred before in the U.S. For executions, Arkansas wants to use a drug combination that includes midazolam and has never before been used in the state. Information gleaned from past executions leads to the conclusion that the drug combination makes prisoners feel they're burning alive from the inside while paralyzed. Midazolam has been used in botched and painful executions before, leading Florida and Arizona to stop using it. Recently, an Ohio judge ruled to cease executions using midazolam. On April 6th, a federal judge blocked the execution of one of the Arkansas men. On April 7th, the parole board heard the clemency petition of another. FightToxicPrisons.org reported that the Florida Department of Corrections impounded the March issue of the Gainesville Iguana because, in the department's word, the publication was racial. The iguana has been distributed widely across north-central Florida, including several prisons, for 30 years. The Department of Corrections gave page numbers of one of the publication's objectionable articles. One page cited is that of the article, Our Cynicism Will Not Build a Movement, Collaboration Will, by Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. In the article, Garza gives the reasons why she participated in the Women's March in Washington, D.C. the day after Trump's inauguration. The other page cited is that of an article by Dan Berger entitled, 
Seven Maxims for Resistance in the Trump Years. The Department of Corrections seems to be concerned that the articles might, quote, present a threat to the security, good order, or discipline of the correctional system, unquote. And speaking of fight toxic prisons, organizers in Texas have announced plans for the second annual Fight Toxic Prisons Conference. Last year, the conference brought together environmentalists and prison organizers in D.C. to discuss and strategize around intersections between their struggles. This year, one focus will be on Carswell, a women's medical facility surrounded by toxic Superfund sites. Carswell hosts an infamous medical wing that acts as a high-security communications management unit, concentrating and isolating political prisoners in particular. Among others who have been held there, like radical lawyer Lynn Stewart, one current prisoner is Marius Mason, a former Bloomington resident and ELF member. For more information on the upcoming convergence, please visit fighttoxicprisons.org. According to the Indianapolis Star, Indianapolis Mayor Joseph Hogsett is planning to sever Marion County's relationship with a private prison company that's been facing criticism for its management of incarceration facilities around the U.S. The county pays the company, CoreCivic, $18 million a year to run Marion County Jail too. Getting rid of the private contractor would save over $16 million a year, the Hogsett administration estimates. The funds would help pay for a new jail expected to cost up to $600 million. The mayor's criminal justice reform task force has recommended the changes in the operation. CoreCivic has run the jail since 1997, and its contract will expire in December. The county is negotiating to keep the jail under private management until the new jail is constructed. This week, we think about the relationship between gender, domestic violence, and prison. In solidarity with the Brescia Meadows Week of Action, we at KiteLine are talking about Brescia's case, along with a few other women who have fought back against domestic violence only to be punished by the state for their own self-preservation, and in some cases, the preservation of their loved ones. We also speak with Evelyn Smith, who's the Prevention Program Coordinator at Middleway House, an organization that provides resources for survivors of domestic violence. You can get updates on Brescia's case and learn more about supporting her at freebrescia.wordpress.com. That's Brescia, B-R-E-S-H-A. A couple of us start by reading a piece by a contributor who was moved by Brescia's case and those facing similar charges. Inspired to learn more, the result of that research is what follows. After enduring years of abuse from her father with no help from the state, 14-year-old Brescia Meadows took justice into her own hands. On July 28, 2016, in Warren, Ohio, Brescia shot her father, Jonathan Meadows, while he slept. Jonathan Meadows abused the family physically, documented through a civil domestic violence protection order Brescia's mother filed in 2011, which describes the abuses she was subject to, including being cut, broken ribs, broken fingers, broken blood vessels, blackened eyes, and a broken nose. He abused the family verbally as he threatened to kill them and would use his gun to intimidate them, the gun which Brescia later used to put an end to the abuse. Prior to defending herself, she ran away twice, self-harmed, began falling behind in school, and was suicidal, according to her aunt. The side effects of distress Brescia showed are common in children experiencing abuse. She confided in her aunt about the abuse that her family was subjected to, and they sought out local law enforcement and family services, but no substantive measures were taken to help the family. Law enforcement refused to question her without her father present. Subsequently, nothing came of her reporting the abuse. As she was refused from the state, Brescia took action to protect herself and her family. Killing her father was an act of self-defense, but as she freed herself and her family, she now faces abuse from the state. 
By defending herself, Brescia, now 15 years old, faces charges of aggravated murder in juvenile court. If she is found guilty during her trial on May 8th, she could be imprisoned until she turns 21. Brescia's case is just one example of how women of color are criminalized for defending themselves against gender-based violence. The state decides who and how one can defend themselves and punishes those who they deem undeserving of self-defense. Overwhelmingly, it is women of color, trans women, and genderqueer people who are demonized by the state in using self-defense and who face further abuse from police and prisons. Even in situations where a woman deters violence against her without harming her abuser, she can still be criminalized by the state. In 2010, Mercy Alexander was arrested after firing a shot into the ceiling of her home after her abusive husband threatened a killer just nine days after she gave birth. Despite having been trained with a weapon, having a concealed carry permit, her husband verbally acknowledging he physically abused her, and living in Florida where she could have been acquitted under the notorious Stand Your Ground legislations, Mercer was convicted on aggravated assault charges in 2012. The same year, George Zimmerman was tried and acquitted under Stand Your Ground after murdering Trayvon Martin as he was walking home from a convenience store. Mercer was sentenced to 20 years and accepted a plea deal in which she served five of those years— three in prison, and two in home confinement, before being released this January. George Zimmerman served no time. This brings to light the discrepancy of who can claim self-defense and who is criminalized for it. The cases give a revealing illustration of the relationship between the state, gender, and violence. The National Radical Feminist Organization, Insight, Women, Gender, Nonconforming, and Trans People of Color Against Violence has published several works on the criminalization of self-defense and the effects of the carceral state on women's lives. They argue that the struggle to defend women from gender-based violence must be paired with the struggle to abolish prisons and reliance on the state generally. Specifically, they criticize the position of so-called carceral feminists who turn to the state as the responsible party in the defense of women against domestic and sexual violence. The state and its prisons do not exist to protect the marginalized. As Insight points out in its essay, Gender Violence in the Prison Industrial Complex, the state, even in a role of designated protector, does little more than paternalistically deprive women of the right to defend themselves if they so choose. Furthermore, it encourages the notion of deserving and undeserving victims, whose perceived innocence or guilt determines whether the choice to use violent self-defense is or is not justified. The reliance on the criminal justice system has taken power away from women's ability to organize collectively to stop violence and has invested this power within the state. The result is that women who seek redress in the criminal justice system feel disempowered and alienated. It has also promoted an individualistic approach toward ending violence such that the only way people think they can intervene in stopping violence is to call the police. This reliance has shifted our focus from developing ways communities can collectively respond to violence. From Color of Violence, the Insight Anthology, page 224. Take the example of Alicia Walker. Walker was a sex worker in 2014 when she was attacked by client and Chicago school teacher Alan Fillin. Fillin punched and attacked Walker with a knife when she refused unprotected sex. In the ensuing struggle, Walker wrestled the knife from Fillin and stabbed him. He later died from his wounds. Walker is now serving a 15-year sentence. I'm in here because I'm a sex worker, even if that's not what I'm actually convicted of, says Walker. Walker's case was the first issue taken up by the Chicago-based sex worker support organization Support Hose, H-O-S-E. Founding member Reg Schultz describes Walker's incarceration as an act of radical self-defense. Walker's actions, like Brescia Meadows and Marissa Alexander, defy the state-sanctioned definition of who has the right to take matters into their own hands. 
The U.S. government, especially during the Bush years, made great efforts to legislate the disempowering of women and non-men in their defense against domestic and sexual violence. Increasingly, religious organizations were tasked with managing domestic abuse shelters, encouraging a complacent and morally conservative conditioning of survivors. The pairing of repression and coercion is represented by the bundling of law enforcement funding with the funding for women's support organizations in legislation like the Violence Against Women's Act, which Evelyn will talk about. Insight demonstrates how the colonial imperialist dimensions of the state determine the notion of innocence in cases of self-defense. In the essay, Rethinking Anti-Violence Strategies, Insight recounts two cases of women of color who kill their male abusers. One, a Pakistani woman named Zura Shah, poisoned a man who effectively kept her as a sex slave. Another, an Indian woman named Kiranjit Aluwalia, who was sentenced to life for the murder of her abusive husband. Insight demonstrates how the campaign to free Karanjit was successful after an extensive media campaign that presented her as a submissive and isolated woman oppressed by the weight of her own culture. Zora Shah, on the other hand, could not escape the label of a dangerous and violent woman. Insight argues that the outcome of both cases was a legacy of British colonial legacy. The image of the violent Muslim, just as much as that of the submissive South Asian, are ideological exponents of an oppressive state which creates its ideal subjects by here exercising violence on them and there depriving them of the right to violence themselves. On the one hand, the state monopolizes the use of violence and criminalizes its use by the general population. On the other, it conditions the marginalized to accept their reliance on the state and encourages passivity toward domestic and sexual violence. Women who do not fit the mold are coercively pacified and labeled as dangerous, emotional, and violent women. More often than not, these are women of color, suffering colonial as well as patriarchal repression. Stormy Ogden, a Native American woman serving time for welfare fraud, describes her experience in prison. Based on my experiences, I know that a major problem for all female prisoners is accessing reliable health care. Nevertheless, many walk around like zombies from all the medication, from high dosages of Thorazine that are given to calm us down. Most of the women I know in county jail and prison were medicated. Some prison staff may believe that women are more vulnerable to emotional upsets and are in need of medical treatment. But the stark reality of psychiatry in prison is that it has everything to do with control management and nothing to do with effective treatment or healing. The idea that incarcerated women must be corrected and reformed from their violent and irrational behavior permeates the prison system. It's a structural result and overlapping of the carceral system, imperialism, and patriarchy. In the ideology of the U.S. government, Brescia Meadows, Marissa Alexander, and Alicia Walker represent the most dangerous elements of our society, women who challenged the traditional patriarchal and white supremacist order on which the U.S. society was founded and through which it continues to function. To punish these women is to reconstitute the very basis which makes the U.S. what it is. This is why Insight argues that to rely on the state to protect women of color misses the point and does little for women's liberation, if not damaging it altogether. A legitimate feminism requires not only the reappropriation of violent power through collective will, but at the same time, the abolition of the prison-industrial complex. Thanks to our contributor for sharing that with us. My name is Evelyn Smith. I work for Middleway House, which is a local domestic violence shelter and rape crisis center, uh, community outreach coordinator. I'm also a local activist, so I work with groups like the Community Justice and Mediation Center, as well as like the Low Barrier Homeless Shelter. My work mostly focuses around sexual violence prevention with marginalized populations. So the last couple of years I've been doing work around homelessness and housing insecurity, as well as some work with adults with disabilities uh, and queer and trans folk. 
the VAWAs, the Violence Against Women Act, provided a lot of funding for services like Middle Way. VAWA also funded a lot of police responses. For example, created things called integrated response teams, which were like these things that all service providers and communities were expected to be a part of. So police, hospitals, and social services like Middle Way. That in itself like is, is forcing organizations like Middle Way into like complicity with them. As well, like VAWA itself was paired with like this big crime bill at the time. Like it was, that was part of passing. It was this big tough on crime bill, uh, air quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> which in general like, provided more funding for police with the idea that they would be better at responding to sexual violence and relationship violence or domestic violence. And that's the theory. So like VAWA itself has over time become sort of this big, almost like feminist shibboleth, sort of this assumption that like VAWA is like an important thing to support as a feminist without any like, especially like within like feminist movements without a whole lot of criticism of like the ways that VAWA has expanded uh, like the carceral state as the only solution for domestic violence and sexual violence. And that sort of that is reflected even beyond institutions, um, but it's reflected in like the way that we even approach violence. So like we very rarely these days have like shelters that are not in some way state funded. And like with state funding comes like lots of regulations, lots of assumptions. We don't have to report, for example, but we have to do a lot of other things and report to the state, like you're accountable to the state. So there's a particular definition of the state that I actually really like to use. Um, the state is the local entity that has a local monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Uh, and so like in that way, like states are very much defined by how they use their police forces, like how they how they use their capacity to enact violence on the populace, both like in theory in order to protect the populace and in practice in order to show, like repress it. The establishment of like this necessary relationship and like in practice, most shelters these days are reliant on the state. Like we're about, I want to say 65% state funded. Middleway would not exist without federal funding. So like making these shelters and these services like reliant on like complicity with, with state and state violence is definitely like stunts like the growth of the movement behind them. So many of these shelters like started as like outgrowths of feminist movement as we become reliant on state funding, I think we often lose sight of sort of the feminist goals that came before. Like, the, it's hard, for example, to keep an eye on the fact, like, on the ways that, like, police enact state violence on women in particular, outside of basic criticisms like recognition that police don't respond well to sexual violence. It's clear to us, for example, that police like fail to address the behavior of perpetrators of violence. What is less clear and is harder to see because of this necessary reliance on state funding and the violence that comes along with it is the way in which it's not just a failure to act, it's also a decision to act in certain cases. So for example, like Brescia Meadows, young woman killed a parent, her father, who was quote-unquote allegedly abusive. And like the state uses its regulatory power to address behavior within families, right, to criminalize her, a woman acting in, in defense of herself and her family. 
this happens all the time. And to be really clear, like this is gendered, it's also racialized. Brescia Meadows is black. Marissa Alexander was a Florida woman. 2012, she fired a warning shot as her abusive ex like broke into her house. Afterwards, like she was under the impression, right? Florida has a has castle laws. But she like she too is black, was criminalized, faced 20 years in prison. I think that has been commuted. Uh, C.C. McDonald, who protected herself from attacker outside a bar in Minneapolis. The, the attacker later died. She also faced time in prison, was forced to plead guilty to second-degree manslaughter. We see the state failing to respond in ways that actually protect its citizens. We also see it choosing to respond in ways that actively furthers like oppression and violence against already marginalized, already oppressed people. A substantial portion of the clients we work with have some quote-unquote criminal history. Sometimes they spent time in prison, sometimes not, but they often like have a history of charges, and which comes up because we have to do a background check for everybody that, that we house. So like one thing that like we're constantly aware of is that, for example, like even a charge of domestic violence, like that is something that happens reciprocally, right? So uh, if a person is being abused, they report that abuse, their abuser will accuse them of violence too. And like, that's a really common abuse tactic. You know, you say, uh, you know, somebody says, hey, why did you hit me? And the person says, oh, you started the fight, right? They'll tell that to cops too. So like, we don't, so like, that's not a disqualifying thing. Like we will have people in our shelter who maybe like have those past convictions. It depends on like, they come to us and tell us, you know, exactly what happened. Yeah, so we see like other ways that the state interacts with our clients, especially around gender-based violence. Like, use that like as a recognition that like domestic violence sexual violence occur across like all lines of gender and sexuality but it is mostly affecting women and people who are not men so like one thing we see is that with same-sex couples like police called on quote-unquote domestic disturbance calls for same-sex couples are 10 to 30 times more likely it depends on like whether it's a lesbian couple or a gay couple to dual arrest which means arrest both parties that ends up showing on people's records it makes it harder to get access to services elsewhere. Prisons, like, for a lot of reasons, they, they play into a lot of other factors that make people vulnerable to violence. Isolation is a huge risk factor for both perpetration and victimization when it comes to sexual violence for, in particular. Prisons, the way that they socially isolate individuals, they prevent, like, the, the formation of, like, meaningful interpersonal connection through the way that they essentially like treat people like cattle. That makes people more likely to commit sexual violence and more likely to be victimized. I would say prisons and law enforcement generally, or the legal system generally, are inextricably tied to most of our clients' experiences of uh, the violence they, that they've gone through, even where it's even where that's not clear to them, it may be like a hard connection to make, or it may be one that just doesn't seem obvious to anybody. But I would say that it's it's rare that that we see somebody who hasn't been affected by the prison industrial complex. Within our shelter, when we have to justify the work that we do, like when we have to explain why we should continue to be funded. Like, we have to address the fact that, like, some of our clients are not quote-unquote photogenic. They have histories of violence, they have histories of addictions. That is, like, a feedback loop 
because then like you're not getting real reflections within like any sort of media depiction, any sort of uh, like record keeping of any sort, like the actual range of people who've experienced uh, sexual violence, like in particular, if somebody has a criminal history, if somebody has a history of addiction, they are all but invisible in like high profile promotional stuff. They show up only like only in the num like only in the numbers. Um, don't come across as human, even. Either other ways this happens too. Sexual violence within prisons is huge. Nobody has done a really good survey of this. Uh, there have been people who've done some preliminary work, and what it suggests is that if you include prison, so prison sexual violence is almost never included when they do like statistics of how many people have been affected by sexual assault. But if you do include it, then it like doubles or triples the rate of men's experiences of sexual violence. I think that's just considered like a real like quote unquote part of the penalty. People make prison rape jokes, which is disgusting. But they see that as okay when they would not make rape jokes otherwise, and so like that's a that's like a very social process of dehumanizing certain kinds of survivors. It also happens meaningfully in a legal sense. Like prisoners are not given access to like this sort of like legal agency within criminal justice systems that that folks who are not in prison are given. And even even if we can like accept that maybe those criminal justice systems are ineffective or even like actively immoral, like not having access to them at all makes you vulnerable to like victimization of all sorts. People essentially know like, they can get away with it. Certainly like in the way that those histories are told, like when we look at, for example, our background checks, we see like a history of like having been arrested or imprisoned for assault uh, sometimes, like, for domestic batteries, the actual charge, or just battery um, stalking, right? When those folks come in, like, the reality is that because, like, we work with humans and we make, like, snap judgments, which is bad but true, are treated with suspicion initially. Like, that, that affects, like, service provision, like, how much help they get and in what different ways, and that is true, like, in every social service system we are not unique in that regard. So it becomes like sort of this weird catch-22 where if you didn't fight back, you know, people, or like if you did not like act to defend yourself in some way, people will treat it as though, well then obviously like it wasn't that traumatic or like you should have fought back, like you should have screamed and kicked and, and hurt this person. If you do fight back, then it, then it's, criminalized. And so if we're talking about like self-defense, the way people fight back, I think it's really important that we think about how that expectation fits into the movements that we build. I think that the feminist movement, especially as it relates to sexual violence and relationship violence, and especially as like those two functions have become more and more part of a social service infrastructure, we've lost a way, or we, we now struggle to imagine as feminists, like, answers that aren't carceral, that don't rely on police, that involve self-defense or other community responses to violence. And there have been great organizations doing that work. Insight, uh, which is a collective women of color against violence. Generation 5, which looks at childhood sexual abuse, also founded by women of color, right, have been doing this sort of work asking like 
not just self-defense, but like what all kinds of community response and accountability and, and safety would look like. Our movements have to be willing to like look at the work that's been done there, um, integrated into the work that we're doing, because otherwise, like we're just going to keep coming up with the same answers. It's going to, it's going to be more laws and more cops and more prisons, uh, which is not, not sustainable on any level. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. Or, you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.